I want to begin by thanking Drisha and the Rudolph family for inviting me here this evening to learn with you in preparation for the high holiday season. It is really an honor and a privilege, so thank you. One summer night when I was in Camp Mosheva, the night activity for the youngest group, Ada Heb, 10-year-olds, was panoply. And one of the many activities that they had to complete in this particular game was a round of riddles and wordplay. And um, I wanted to share with you a riddle that received the most, I think, surprising answer. Here's the riddle. Peel off my skin and you will cry, but I won't. What am I? Now, many kids right away figured out that the answer to this question was an onion. But one kid, however, handed in a sheet on which was written, Rabbi Akiva. I think the story of the martyrdom of the ten rabbis, the Asara Haruge Malchut, has had a profound impact on Jews of all ages throughout the generations, which we're only beginning to really understand. Like a hind crying for water, accosted, my soul cries for you, O God, my soul thirsts. For God, the living God. Oh, when will I come to appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. I am ever taunted with, Where is your God? Ela Ezkira, Veshbacha Alai Nafshi. These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. These are the words of the psalmist in Psalm 42. A man for whom God is the most basic nourishment. And yet he is tormented by his enemies that his God is absolutely powerless to save him. Many of us are perhaps most familiar with this psalm because verse 5 opens one of the most dramatic, intense, and moving pieces of the Yom Kippur liturgy, the poem which recounts the torture and martyrdom of the ten rabbis in the period after the Second Temple's destruction, known by its opening words, Ela Ezkara, these things I remember. And I wanted to talk about this poem for a reason I think that's difficult to explain. Um, it is my favorite prayer, probably of all time. I actually look forward to it all year. And it happens, I think, at the most difficult point in the day. We have been fasting for many hours, and there are still many hours to go. Um, most of us are speed reading through the Abodah portion of the Musaf, maybe already beginning to plan and think about our breakfast meal and what we're going to have versus what we wish we were going to have. Um, but for me, I'll be honest, I find myself anxiously awaiting this prayer, a solemn, sobering, intense, draining prayer. Somehow, I find that in the middle of the day, it refocuses me and rejuvenates me. The prayer allows me to connect to the Jewish past, to the heroes of an earlier time. And I just, I guess I feel so strongly during this prayer. And I'm hoping that this evening, that together we can come to a deeper understanding of this tefillah and the range of emotions it can evoke from even the modern petitioner, for whom martyrdom is thankfully not a reality which we have to deal with on a constant basis. And I think the 20th century Jewish scholar Louis Finkelstein describes what it feels like to live through this synagogue moment. When we read this piyut, this religious poem about the death of the ten great rabbis on the Day of Atonement, and it really, really resonated with me as I hope it will with you. So he writes, how peculiarly contemporary they all seemed, and how much one suffered when one thought of the cruel fate which befell them. One forgot that they had been dead for centuries, and that their sufferings over, they were at peace in paradise. Drawn out of the dim past, they were living personalities. Their learning and their piety, their courage and their saintliness, their heroism and their martyrdom were part of the immediate experience. They were resurrected out of their humble graves and stood once more in the dock, listening to the charges against them and waiting for their doom to be pronounced by the inexorable Roman. 
We recite this poem again, which we'll get to in just a moment, in the Slichot, the petition portion of the Musaf prayers during the cantor's repetition. Between the long, long, long description of the Avodah, the priestly service done on Yom Kippur in the times of the temple to effect the atonement of all of Israel, and the Vidoy, the confession of our sins. We actually read a story quite similar to this one just a number of weeks ago during the keynotes, the lamentations or dirges we recite on the morning of Tisha B'Av when we recall the tragedies that have befallen the Jewish people since the destruction of the first temple in 586 BCE. A seemingly appropriate place to remember the death of these men who died for the sanctification of God's name. Their gruesome deaths are read alongside stories of women who ate their children, of the boiling of the prophet's blood, of the horrors that Israel has been forced to endure over the years. And I never question the place of this poem on the great day of Jewish tragedy recalled. But the Day of Atonement is not a day of mourning. It is a day of penitence, of asking God to forgive us for our sins. So the question I want to think about with you here tonight is what is the purpose of reciting this poem during the Yom Kippur service? It is beautiful, no doubt, and moving, but does it belong on Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement? Does it in any way reflect the themes of the day? And I'll be honest, I'm not interested in spending too much time right now in exploring who and why it was placed in the Yom Kippur liturgy at some point in history but I want to think about what is its meaning to a person living in the 21st century. I believe that a really good prayer always serves two simultaneous functions. And so to elaborate and specify my question, I'll have to explain both. I think that prayer must always make a demand on me, the petitioner, by evoking a certain feeling, by bringing me to an intellectual or emotional place or state from which I can proceed. It should change me. Internally, it should affect me in a way that I am no longer the same person I was moments before reciting this prayer. And for those people who argue, well, God does not need our prayer, we do. We need prayer. But at the same time, I believe... A prayer always makes a demand on God, the listener, and hopefully a respondent, making the Almighty aware, as it were, of a reality of the human condition. Prayer is not simply introspection, but a conversation in which a person engages with God. So my two questions are, what emotions or meaningful understanding should this piyut of the Asara Haruge Mahut evoke from me on the holiday of Yom Kippur, on me the petitioner who is saying it? And what message am I trying by saying it to impart and communicate to God? So in order to answer these questions, I'd like to take a closer look at this poem together. Just some brief words of introduction. This poem is based on a late Midrash written sometime between the 5th and 7th centuries of the Common Era, the early Middle Ages, and is regarded by most scholars to be a legend conflated from several earlier martyrological sources. The lives of the ten sages recorded in this Midrash actually span, span a number of generations in the first two centuries of the Common Era. Some of these rabbis lived following the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE, and some lived during the time of the Hadrianic persecutions and the Bar Kokhba revolt in the mid-130s CE. So this is not a historical account, but a dramatic recounting, perhaps invoking the totality of Jewish martyrdom and expiation. I think as one author so beautifully puts it, none of it is historical. All of it is true. The poem was composed by an otherwise unknown poet whose signature, Yehuda Chazak, Judah, may be strong, which can be seen in an acrostic in the last stanza of the poem. So if it's all right with you, we'll read this together, I think, in English, and I will pause to do some, some brief explanation. This is on your handout. Ela Ezkara, thee shall I recall, and I pour out my soul within me. For wanton people have devoured me as if I were an unturned cake. For in that ruler's time there was no reprieve for the ten who were murdered by the government. As the ruler studied the book taught by the Sanhedrin, which is likened to a nourishing heap, 
He understood and analyzed the inscribed law. He opened it to, these are the statutes, and thought of a plot regarding if someone kidnaps a person and sells him and he is found guilty, he is to be put to death. Chatanu tsurenu, slachlanu yosrenu. We have erred our rock, forgive us our molder. The implication here is that the Roman ruler of this time, who was left unnamed, insisted on learning Torah from the great rabbis themselves. Now, whether or not this is historically true, I think when studying the Hadrianic persecutions in particular and the particular anti-Jewish decrees which he instituted, it seems somehow that he knew exactly how to target and strike at the heart of the Jewish people. It seemed almost like an insider job done by someone who was intimately acquainted and would, again, know exactly where to strike to truly bring down the people. There, there are people who argue there must have been a Jewish defector who actually informed Hadrian of exactly where to strike. But here again is a portrayal of the Roman leader who wanted to study Torah and who in learning Parshat Mishpatim comes across an interesting law which states that a man who sells his brother into slavery should be punished by death. And he then comes up with a plot back inside. He became arrogant against the great sages and ordered that his palace be filled with shoes and sent for ten great sages who plumbed the law and its principles through analytical discussion. It's fascinating. Why did he fill his palace with shoes? This seems to be based on the Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer and the Targum Yonatan on Amos 2.6 where it says, Hashem al shlosha Yisrael arba'a lo ashivenu al tzadik Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, ye for four, I will not reverse it, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes. Here the 8th century BCE prophet is critical of Israel for the oppression of the poor, whose worth is no more than a pair of shoes. And the Midrash says, picking up on the tzaddik, that Yosef HaTzaddik was sold by his brothers for the worth of a pair of shoes. I think there's something very powerful when we have the same symbols and images throughout history that can conjure up terrible emotions within us. I think for many of us in the modern era, when we think of a room full of shoes, we can't help but think of imagery from the Holocaust, the Nazis who took all of the shoes of their victims. And I think, again, it's strange how symbolism can change and yet remain very much the same. These shoes which lined the palace of the Roman leader was used as physical evidence to accuse the great rabbis. Back inside, Dalid, he commanded to the sages, judge this case authentically and state the decision without perverted deceit. Rather, you must elucidate it truthfully and clearly. What is the law if a man is found to have kidnapped a member of his Jewish brethren and he has enslaved him and sold him? We have erred our rock. Forgive us our molder. He asks a seemingly genuine halacha question. Studying the scripture, he turns to the great rabbis and says, Please, educate me exactly what is the law. They answered him, That kidnapper is to die. Said he, Then what of your ancestors who sold their brother to a caravan of Ishmaelites? They peddled him and gave him away for a pair of shoes. Now you must accept the heavenly judgment upon yourselves. For since your forefathers' times, there have been none like you. Were they alive, I would have prosecuted them before you. So you must bear the sin of your ancestors. We have erred our rock. Forgive us our molder. Again, the punishment for selling a fellow Israelite into slavery is death. And yet we do not see that Joseph's brothers were put to death for having sold him. Clearly, from the perspective of the Midrash, the rabbis here are being put to death to atone for the sin of their early fathers. Zion, we're now on the second page. Give us three days' time until we can ascertain whether this was decreed from on high. If we are liable and guilty, we will endure the decree of the All-Merciful. Again, how powerful that that's how they refer to God here. Again, they need time to figure out is this decree true? All of them trembled, shivered, and shuddered. 
Upon Rabbi Ishmael, the Kohen Gadol, they fixed their eyes for him to utter the divine name and ascend to his master to learn if the decree had emanated from his God. We have erred our rock. Forgive us our molder. Rabbi Ishmael purified himself and uttered the name reverently. He ascended to the heights and, and inquired of Gavriel, here's Haish, the angel dressed in linen, said he to him, Accept it upon yourselves, O righteous and beloved ones, for I have heard from behind the partition that you have been destined for this. Rabbi Ishmael, the high priest, knew how to utter the ineffable divine name and he used it to ascend to the heavens. In the original Midrash, a lot more attention is given to this particular ascension, and we'll get back to it. But it is clear here again, these men are being put to death specifically, specifically because they're beloved and righteous, not because they are personally deserving of death. Chah. That is head, sorry, Yud. When he descended and related the word of God to his comrades, whereupon the evil tyrant commanded that they be killed by force and brutality. Two of them, who were the leaders of Israel, were taken out first, Rabbi Ishmael the Kohen Gadol and Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, the Nasi, prince of Israel. We have erred our rock, forgive us our molder. That his head be severed first, Rabbi Shimon begged exceedingly, saying, Kill me first and let me not see the death of Rabbi Ishmael the Kohen Gadol, the minister of him who dwells in the temple. The serpent ordered that lots be cast, and the lot fell on Rabban Shimon. He hastened to shed Rabban Shimon's blood as if he were an ox. And when his head was severed, Rabbi Shmael took it and wailed over him in a bitter, shofar-like voice. Woe is the tongue that hastened to teach the word of beauty. How could it now lick the dust because of sins? We have erred our rock. Forgive us our molder. How very much he shudderingly wept over him. The daughter of the wicked one stood still at the sound of Rabbi Ishmael's weeping. Inwardly she covered, coveted his physical beauty and begged her father to let him live. The wicked one contemptuously refused to grant this request. She then asked of him that the flesh be flayed from Rabbi Ishmael's face. He did not refrain from doing so. When the executioner reached the place of Tefillin, Rabbi Ishmael shrieked with a bitter scream to the molder of his soul. We have erred our rock. Forgive us our molder. The celestial Seraphim cried out bitterly, Zo Torah v'zo Schara, is this Torah and is this its reward? O God who cloaks himself in light as with a garment, the enemy insults your great and awesome name and reviles and blasphemes against the word of the Torah. A voice from heaven responded, If I hear another sound, I will transform the universe to water. I will turn the earth to astonishing emptiness to Tova Vohu. This is a decree from my presence. Accept it, you who delight in the 2,000-year-old law. We have erred our rock. Forgive us our molder. I think that stanza is perhaps the most powerful in the whole Midrash when the Malachim themselves turn to God and demand justice and say, this is Torah, this is its reward, the screeching and the piercing voice of Rabbi Ishmael when the, when the, when the scraping reached the place of the tefillin. Okay. Leaders were murdered, those who sit up late in synagogues, who were as full of commandments as a pomegranate and as the altar's corners. They took out Rabbi Akiva, who expounded the crowns of the letters and lacerated his flesh with sharp-toothed combs. And it's to this image that that ten-year-old was referring when he answered that riddle. Rabbi Akiva, the great optimist and Tanaitic hero, I think actually Milton Steinberg really captured the moment of Akiva's death based on the Gemara in his work As a Driven Leaf, which is a historical fiction novel. And in novel form, he tells the story. And I'll just tell you, I was rereading re this book this summer. I was uh, at jury duty, and uh, we had spent a lot of time just sitting in the room waiting to be called. I actually was chosen for a trial eventually. And um, 
as I was sitting reading these paragraphs, where again, in novel form, he describes this scene, I was loudly crying. And then I wondered why I didn't make any friends in jury duty. But, um, but, but really, I think it's so powerful. So if you'll indulge me for just a moment, I'd like to read a brief excerpt from this famous scene in the novel. Iron combs dug into Akiva's flesh, but he stood erect at the stake. His belly and thighs were striated by deep, bleeding lines, but on his lips there was a fixed smile, and in his eyes a look of ecstatic happiness. His face contorted for from time to time, but relaxed always into an expression of joy. The crowd, waiting intently for some sign of failing strength or waning courage, murmured in admiration. Still, Akiva smiled. Through the expectant silence, a voice called out of the multitude, Master, Master, is your endurance so great? Calmly, as though the question were addressed to him as a lecturer, Akiva answered in a voice steady, except for an occasional wavering as the combs tore at him. It is written, Hear, O Israel, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, even when thy soul is taken from thee. Then his knees bent, his body leaned forward and his head was bowed. He died in this posture as one making deep obeisance to a great king. Tadi. The ruler ordered that Rabbi Hanania ben Teradion be brought from his study hall and they burned his body with bundles of branches. They placed saturated wool sponges on his chest to delay his death. As soon as they were removed, he was burned together with his Torah scroll. We have erred our rock. Forgive us our molder. When Rabbi Chanino uh, was standing there with the wet cloth on his heart wrapped in his Torah scroll, his students, according to the legend, send, said to him, Rabbi, what do you see? And he replied, I see scrolls of parchment aflame, but the letters are flying up to the heavens. There's a famous story that the executioner himself was so moved by Rabbi Hanina um, that he turned to him and said, if I remove the tufts of wool from your heart and fan the flames, can I get a place, can I gain access in the world to come? Rabbi Hanina said yes. The tuft of wool was removed and the executioner fanned the flames and then threw himself into the fire. A bot coal came down at that moment and declared, Rabbi Hanina and his executioner have both gained entrance into eternal life in the world to come. Kuf. Lament, you holy members of the people that is never abandoned because they were murdered and their blood was shed for a trivial cause. In Hebrew, that's al-Davar Mu'at. I always wonder what this trivial cause is that the author is saying here. To sanctify the heavenly name, they martyred themselves through the murder of Rabbi Chutzpit, the interpreter. The legend is that Rabbi Chutzpit was one day short of his 130th birthday, and he begged for one more day to fulfill two commandments, saying the Kriyat Shema of the morning and the evening. Reish. Let a shudder seize all who hear the news, and let every eye release a flow of tears, and let every delight be turned to grief with the murder of Rabbi Elazar ben Shamua. We have erred our rock. Forgive us our molder. The day of Rabbi Eliezer's execution was Yom Kippur. His students asked him, Our teacher, what do you behold? He answered, I behold Rabbi Yudah ben Baba, whose beer is raised aloft, and the beer of Rabbi Akiva next to it. The two are disputing with each other over a point of law. And who is there to decide the law between them? Rabbi Eliezer's students asked. Rabbi Ishmael, the Kohen Gadol. Shin. My enemies and oppressors destroyed me and gorged their stomachs with my delicacies, but they made me drink poison and wormwood with the murder of Rabbi Hanina ben Chachinai. Uh, Rabbi Hanina was one of Rabbi Akiva's students. He died right, reciting the Kiddush on Friday night. Tough. They overwhelmed us to make us violate the commandments and refused to accept wealth and ransom. Only the lives of those who studied the words of beauty, right? like Rabbi Yeshivav, the scribe. We have erred our rock. Forgive us our molder. Rabbi Yeshivav was known for his generosity. He encouraged his students, even on his deathbed, to be kind to each other and always pursue love, peace, and justice. 
They pam- the pampered people Edom that will be made desolate crushed me. They did us more evil than did all the kings of the earth and murdered more and more of us as with the murder of Rabbi Yehuda ben Dama. Rabbi Yehuda was tied by his hair, it says, um, to, the, to the tail of a horse and dragged through Rome. He was then cut limb by limb. The legend has it that Eliyahu Hanavi went and gathered his body and buried him. You said the house of Jacob is fire and the house of Joseph is a flame, but now the straw of Asav has extinguished them. O living one, crush their haughtiness in the conflagration of the time to come, for they have agreed to murder ten righteous men with Rabbi Yehuda ben Bava. Rabbi Yehuda ben Bava is famous for ordaining uh, the five great students of Rabbi Akiva's old age, ensuring the continuance of smicha and Torah study. Um, according to the Gemara, a Roman patrol found them in the mountains, and he urged the younger men to escape. Uh, he was shot through by their arrows. This befell us, and we have related it clearly, and poured out, out our degraded, aggrieved heart. From on high, be attentive to supplication. O Hashem, Hashem, compassionate and gracious God. O compassionate one, look down from the heights at the spilled blood of the righteous and their very lifeblood. See from your chamber and remove the stains, O King who sits on the throne of mercy. Chatanu Turenu. We have erred our rock, forgive us our molder. I always wondered if there wasn't a bit of sarcasm in that line, but we shall return to it. It is widely agreed upon today that the legend of the ten martyrs began to actually take shape within mystical circles, and that the earliest narrative of the death of these rabbinic martyrs can be found in the Hechalot Rabbati literature. The Hechalot literature described the religious experience of a school of practitioners who originated in Palestine in Talmudic and perhaps Tanaitic times, sometime between 70 and 500 of the Common Era, but which is known primarily from the literature transmitted to Western uh, Europe from Babylonia. These practitioners made use of ascetic practices to experience the ascent or descent to the chariot of God. They would recite hymns, prayers, along with the invocation of divine names and other magical practices, which served to generate a state of ecstasy, which allowed them to make the perilous journey through the gates of the seven celestial palaces in order to stand before the throne of God. That was the goal. Now, in the poem we just read, this is not entirely obvious, but I mentioned that one element of the original Midrash was, in fact, the ascent of Rabbi Ishmael into the sixth heaven. After purifying himself through ritual immersion, he wrapped himself in Ta'alit and Tefillin, pronounced the ineffable divine names, and was swept by a wind into the sixth heaven. And there he had an extended conversation with the angel Gabriel. The Midrash actually interrupts itself with the story of why Rabbi Ishmael is so good-looking. As we know, it was actually his beauty that led to the particularity of his gruesome death. Gabriel there informs him that everyday justice, who in the Midrashic rabbinic mind has his own persona up in the heavens in the court of God, has been an accusation of God asking daily why no one has yet been punished for the crime of the sale of Joseph. And it had been decreed that ten rabbis must be handed over to atone for this crime. Until this generation, however, there were none who were righteous enough to make the payment for this crime. While up there in the heavens, Rabbi Ishmael also overheard God swearing that Rome would eventually pay for this crime against the ten great leaders of Israel. The Midrash continues. When Rabbi Ishmael heard this decree, his mind was finally set at rest. He was strolling to and fro in heaven when he saw an altar next to the throne of glory. What is this? he asked Gabriel. An altar for sacrifice, the angel told him. What sort of sacrifice do you offer upon it each day? Rabbi Ishmael asked. Are there bullocks and sacrificial animals here? Every day we sacrifice the souls of the righteous on this altar, Gabriel answered. 
if this Midrash is not historically accurate or meant to portray a historical event, what gave rise to this legend of the Ten Martyrs? Various opinions have been offered by scholars throughout the years. One I found particularly interesting is that according to the Torah, according to the Bible, the tenth day of the seventh month of Tishrei is to be the day of atonement, a day of atonement. But the Bible does not give either a historical or theological reason as to why it is the tenth day of the seven months in particular that was set aside to be Yom Kippur. Right? There's no reason given. The Book of Jubilees, an ancient uh, religious work considered to be one of the pseudopigrapha, a book of unknown authorship written somewhere between 200 BCE and 200 CE, provides an answer, but I'll just give you a little bit of background on the Book of Jubilees itself. Uh, when the Bible was eventually canonized, right, with the 24 books of the Bible, a choice was made. Um, and at that time, there were many different types and genres of Israelite literature floating around. One particular type or genre is known in modern scholarship as rewritten Bible, in which there is a reworking of some narrative that is, is in the current canonical text. So in the case of the Book of Jubilees, it's a retelling of the stories found in the books of Breshit and Shemot, of Genesis and Exodus. The Book of Jubilees makes the following claim. It is the history of the division of the days of the law, of the events of the years, the year weeks, and the jubilees of the world, as revealed to Moshe in addition to the Torah by angels while he was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. So it claims to be authentic that the Book of Jubilees was given to Moshe Rabbeinu as he stood on Mount Sinai along with the rest of the instruction and in the law. The chronology given in Jubilees is based on multiples of seven. The Jubilees are periods of 49 years, seven-year weeks as they're called, into which all time has been divided. And according to the author of Jubilees, all proper customs that mankind should follow are determined by God's decrees. And again, it goes through the main stories of Breshid and Shemot um, by, and identifies much clearer dates for all the events that happened and perhaps add what we today would call a midrashic spin on things. Again, the Book of Jubilees is not part of the official canon, um, but it was very well known at that time and I, I think could be considered a form of early midrash in the sense that the author of the Book of Jubilees is trying to fill in some of the gaps in the text that we have and uses the story to communicate larger truth. Very interesting, when recording the story of the sale of Joseph into slavery, the book of Jubilee states as follows. And they dealt treacherously with him and formed a plot against him to slay him. But changing their minds, they sold him to Ishmaelite merchants and they brought him down into Egypt. For this reason, it is ordained for the children of Israel that they should afflict themselves on the tenth of the seventh month, on the day that the news which made him weep for Joseph came to Jacob his father, that they should make atonement for themselves thereon with a young goat on the tenth of the seventh month, once a year for their sins. For they had grieved the affection of their father regarding Joseph his son. And this day has been ordained that they should grieve thereon for their sins and for all their transgressions and for all their errors, so that they might, make, might cleanse themselves on that day once a year. So we learn from this extra canonical, canonical work that the sin of Joseph's brothers, for which there is no date in Sefer Breshit, actually happened, according to the Book of Jubilees, on the day we now call Yom Kippur. And why was it that Yom Kippur was specifically chosen as the Day of Atonement? To make an atonement for this grievous act of the, of, on the part of Joseph's brothers. But it doesn't say exactly how this atonement should be done. Perhaps on some level, the legend of the Asara Haruge Malchut is a response to this idea. And the concept itself made its way into more standard rabbinic texts. The Sifrash Mini connects Yosef's sale and the worship of the golden calf as archetypal sins at the heart of the Yom Kippur Avodah. The Midrash goes as follows. You have in your hands a sin from the beginning, and you have in your hand a sin from the end. You have in your hands a sin from the beginning, quote, they, Joseph's brothers, slaughtered a goat 
and dip the coat in blood. And you have in your hands, in the end, they have made for themselves a molten calf. Let a goat come and atone for an action with a goat. Let a calf come and atone for an action with a calf. Um, it seems clear here in the Meshach Chachman, Rav Meir Simcha, Cohen of Dvinsk, who lived in the late 19th and early 20th century, says that these two sins represent the archetypal sins between man and God as Bnei Israel violated the most basic principle when they made the golden calf. And the ultimate sin bein Adam l'chaveiro between man and man when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. By the way, the Rambam in the Moran of Buchim sees this source as the definitive rationale for the Yom Kippur Seir Azazel, the scapegoat. Why particularly is it a goat that is sent off, you know, off the cliff into, the, into Azazel to atone for the sins of Bnei Israel. Why a goat? Because it was a goat that was slaughtered by Joseph's brothers when they caused such pain to both him and to their own father. And of course, a cow is also sacrificed, a bull is also sacrificed on Yom Kippur. There is also a statement in the Midrash and Tehillim, I think very eerie, in which the Midrash says, in every generation, the death of ten men is required in order to atone for this sin, and it still has yet to be properly atoned for. So perhaps the author of Army Drash about the ten martyrs is indeed responding to this claim. The sin of the sale of Yosef, which may have happened on Yom Kippur, was never properly atoned for. And thus it is the responsibility of righteous men, of men who only the stature of these ten could fulfill, had to die for this sin. But this raises a number of extremely significant problems. Number one. There is actually no mention of the term Asara Haruge Malchut, ten martyrs, in the Gemara. In fact, only the death of a couple of them is recorded in the Gemara. Why, if this is such powerful imagery, is it not told over? Now that question may be answered by our second question. The theological conception that the death of a blameless person can redeem with his blood a sin committed in antiquity is not usually thought of as a particularly Jewish concept. In scholarship, atoning death is frequently dismissed really as antithetical to Judaism. We're more comfortable with the notions that individuals who are imperfect sinners suffer to affect their own atonement, in contrast really with the Christian concept that the suffering of the perfect individual can atone for the sins of the many, this notion of vicarious atonement. Were the rabbis perhaps a bit uncomfortable with this idea, especially because we have a pasuk straight out in the Torah which clearly states, that children shall not be put to death for the sins of their fathers. It says in Dvarim, Lo yumtu avot al-banim uvanim lo yumtu al-avot. Ish becheto yumatu. The father shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for their fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. And that brings us to our third question. We could have had a beautiful midrash without this concept of atoning death altogether. The author of the Midrash ignores completely the historical and immediately, immediate political circumstances that actually led to the death of these ten men, which was an inspiring concept. Their refusal to submit themselves to the Romans, their refusal to give up Judaism, to stop teaching. Could we not have had a beautiful midrash in which they died for the sanctification of, their na of the name, unwilling to give in? Why do we need this framework of atoning for the death of the sale of Yosef, which happened thousands of years earlier? Why does the author of the midrash insist on introducing a reason that cannot be found in the Gemara at all. It should be noted, by the way, that when we read the Kina of Arzea Havanon, which again retells this story on Tisha B'Av, there's no mention of this framework of Yosef and the, sale of, and the selling of Yosef by his brothers. And also in the poem, the Sidur of the Liturgy for Yom Kippur of Rav Sadja Gaon, he also doesn't mention it. Now, many different historical reasons for why to put it within the framework of Yosef have been offered. 
Some scholars have argued that the text represents the teachings and spirit of an apocalyptic Pharisaic sect that was indeed the forerunner of the Christians in response to the Book of Jubilees. That there is a Christian way of thinking that is embedded in this text and that mainstream rabbinic Judaism eliminated this strain when things got, quote-unquote, uncomfortable and Christians made this claim. Also, it should be noted that this text really only achieved real popularity in the Middle Ages when it became the paradigmatic account of Kiddush Hashem, where martyrdom was the ultimate act of religious devotion. The connection, perhaps, to Yosef served the rabbis as a mode of really rationalizing the suffering that they were enduring in their generation in particular by connecting to the national past. It was a way for them to make sense of why they had to go through what they were going through. One author suggests um, that Yosef in this poem should actually be really read as Jesus. Why? The author of Amidrash, who lived in the Middle Ages, did not ever intend to give a description of the fate of the martyrs who lived in the time of the Hadrianic persecutions and purposely disregarded historical events and that which was written in the Talmud. His intention, rather, was actually to present a trend in his generation for why there was persecution of the Jews, namely, not that they had sold Yosef all those years back, but that they had killed Jesus. What I find most powerful about Slichot and Tfilot in general is that I think every generation can find its own meaning um, and a different focus and interpretation of the prayer. So with that in mind, I'd like to return to our original question and focus on the fact that we, Jews in the modern era, recite this poem every year on Yom Kippur. We finish reading the Avodah, describing in elaborate detail the cultic ritual carried out by the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, when the Jerusalem temple was still in operation. And just to, just to review, the questions we are thinking about are number one, what emotions or meaningful understanding should this piyut about the ten martyrs evoke from me, the petitioner who stands reciting this poem in our congregation to myself and to God on Yom Kippur? And what message am I trying to communicate and to impart to God by saying it? One of the most powerful images that we carry with us throughout the high holiday season is that of the scale. In fact, that is Tishrei's zodiac, the scales hanging in the balance. And the power of that imagery is intense. We've learned it from the time we were small children the image of the great judge weighing one's deeds, hoping that the good will outweigh the bad, thus ensuring for all of us a stamp in the book of life for the year to come. The Rambam, Maimonides, in Hilchot Tshuva says, one should see the world and see himself as a scale with an equal balance of good and evil. When he does one good deed, the scale is tipped to the good. He and the world is saved. When he does one evil deed, the scale is tipped to the bad. He and the world is destroyed. But I think at some point in life, we realize that it doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes, good people won't make it through the year. And it's not because of their deeds. The righteous, the innocent, children suffer and die, and it's not because of individual guilt or even immediate historical or political circumstance. We can't understand it. And it is upsetting, and it is as upsetting and befuddling as ten great men, leaders of Israel, beloved by God, dying because thousands of years earlier, other men committed a wrong. When the Seraphim cry out, Zo Torah v'zo Schara, this is Torah and this is its reward, God threatens to turn the world back to Tova Vohu, to emptiness and void, to chaos. God is saying as he did to Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Speak if you have understanding. There is no one who can understand the workings of God. We may or may not have erred, our rock. Forgive us, our molder. 
This season seems to have almost two mutually undermining strains running through it, which we must keep in mind and constantly hold in tandem. On the one hand, we declare, Tshuva utfila utdaka ma'avirin et roa hagzera. We will do everything that is in our power to guarantee ourselves a place in the book of life. We fast, we pray, we do good to others. We have this tremendous notion that we are in control of our own destiny. And yet we are acutely aware that despite all the good we do, there are times when things will not work out the way we expect. We know going into the new year that there will be death and suffering. We know that no matter what we do, sometimes God has other plans. And those plans rarely make sense to us. We cannot understand because our cognitive ability is limited, our perspective on reality strained. On some level, we throw up our hands to fate and say, there's only so much we can do. And still we act. We fast, we pray, we do good to others, hoping, but knowing all the same, that it may or may not work out. Ten great men, leaders of their generation, blameless in their actions, giants of Torah and goodness, beloved by God. No doubt they fasted, they prayed, they did good to others, and yet each died a horrific death. The poem we read does not attribute their death to their own deeds or circumstances, but to an event we cannot understand, an event that seems to fly in the face of everything we know about Judaism. But in some ways... That is what is incredible about Judaism. Most Jewish theology is not systematic. We're not interested in thinking systematically about the nature of God, but rather we hold on to different images and narratives of how we relate to God. And often those images are contradictory and confusing and beautiful because relationships are rarely systematic. Because if they are true, they are creative, free-flowing, and imaginative. We want to explore relationships. And because of that, they won't fit neatly into a box. And that is why the great Rabbi Akiva can smile even at the gruesome end. He continued to build a relationship with God even in death. Yes, Jewish theology is complex and does not fit into categorical boxes. And while that may not be comfortable, it forces us to think and to engage with it. That is what this piyut is about. We hold in tandem perhaps confusing views about the nature of death and atonement. Concepts that seem difficult in the Judaism we are trying to understand. We connect to the individual men in this story who accepted death because it was the divine decree. Because it is a part of life. And though death was upon them and little sense could be made of it, they continued to fast, to pray, and to do good. And so at this intense moment, we evoke a feeling of being both a master of destiny and a prisoner of fate. We will do all that we can and accept what will be. A favorite line recited often when I was in divinity school is that the role of the pastor and actually religion in the 21st century is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That is precisely what this Midrash does. And that brings us to their second question. What is it that we are trying to communicate to God? As we grapple with this reality of the human condition, we are trying to impart a message to God himself. As I mentioned, we read this poem having just completed the Avodah service. After an elaborate rendition of the rituals of the day, followed by the piyut mar'ek kohen, about the magnificence of the appearance of the high priest, we recite a poem in which each stanza begins, Fortunate is the eye that saw, for the ear to hear of it distresses our soul. Rosalovechik comments on this poem, Suddenly the python and the reader of the piyut are rudely awakened from a dream. They cry, this is no longer the reality in which we live. It existed once, yes, but it is no more. One finds himself alone on a stormy night, dark, lost, and he cries out, 
All this occurred while the temple was in existence. Fortunate is the eye which saw all of these things. Fortunate is the eye, but not our eyes. And so immediately we recite Piyutim of mourning. Suddenly Yom Kippur transforms and takes on a Tisha B'Av tone, and the climax seems to be the piyut about the ten martyrs. Now, I've always loved the holiday of Tisha B'Av, and I know that may sound crazy, but I love the idea that there is a holiday in which it is liturgically acceptable amidst blaming ourselves to turn to God and say, enough is enough. We will recall every gruesome detail, God, of what you have put us through. Sure, we messed up, but enough. That is what we are saying here. In the, in the, in the prayer of the ten martyrs, we state, Yes, we mourn not having a temple in which to offer sacrifices to help us atone for our sins. But that does not mean, God, that we have not sacrificed. When Rabbi Ishmael ascended to heaven, he saw the altar for righteous souls. And on that altar, every generation of Jews has sacrificed. We have sacrificed for religion and God, for simply being Jewish, and often for simply being human beings. All of these concepts are found in the Midrash Ela Ezkara. The piyut of the ten martyrs relates that human sacrifice entailed in the martyr's death replaces the animal offerings of the earthly temple and the blood of the martyrs is the sole guarantee of the salvation of the Jewish people. And just as animals brought as sacrifices had to be pure and blameless, so the people often are as well. In a recent article on this piyut, in uh, Hakira magazine, Nachman Levine puts forth the argument that this poem actually deliberately and methodologically describes the martyrdom in terms of the Yom Kippur Avodah motif. How? We have a preparation, priestly purification, a lottery, a calling out of the divine name, slaughter, skinning, spilling and sprinkling of blood, and burning. All of these elements are essential elements of the Avodah service in the temple and are invoked in this poem in the death of the ten righteous men. The death of the martyrs has replaced the Avodah service. God, you gave us a way to deal with the irre irrevocable loss of atonement through the Beit HaMikdash. But we have, played a, we have paid a plenty. And so we turn to God and say, Enough. We have, a, we have sinned and atoned for that sin. In every generation, ten upon tens of righteous men and women have died before the their time. Surely we have atoned for that sin of our fathers by now. God, take note. This Yom Kippur, when we confront God, we pray that he indeed accept our sacrifices and forgive us to keep order and not let chaos prevail. God, do not turn this world into tohu vavohu, into void and nothingness. When we confront ourselves, we hope for the strength to endure, to accept the reality of a sometimes inexplicable world while having hope and faith in our own ability to correct and create it. Ela Ezkara, Besh Bacha Alai Nafshi. These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. Wishing everyone here a chativa v'chatima tova and a happy new year. Thank you.